Welcome to the Entrepreneur Academy with your hosts, Nick Dutton of Engage Finance and James Cross from Crossover Property on this episode of the Entrepreneur Academy. Employing people isn't the only measure of success, but if it's right for your business, then make sure you get the right people into those roles. If you've not got the right skills yourself in terms of being a people person, work with somebody who has or develop those aspects of yourself give yourself a structure but now here are your hosts nick and james hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the entrepreneur academy with myself and jim hello everyone we're all good and we have a guest appearance today from paul dermody hi paul welcome to the show hi nick hi jim hi everyone thanks for coming uh coming and joining us today paul we're all over zoom because COVID outbreak continues and um, we're obviously using as much as technology as possible. Um, but I, I wanted to get you on today, Paul, just to uh, give our audience a bit of a background about yourself, um, the businesses that you've been involved with, and hopefully we can touch on some points um, throughout the discussions that can really add value to, to our listeners, uh, whether that be business, whether it be social media, which I know you're active on, whether it be property. Um, so just give us a bit of a background of, of yourself, your business journey and where you are today. Um, and we can start from there. Sure, happy to. Um, well, I started in the pharmaceutical industry um, and I worked in that uh, industry from a medical sales representative level up to being a national sales manager for some of the major uh, pharma companies in the UK. And then at the end of 2003, got the opportunity to start a business with some colleagues. So we set up our first business back then called North 51. Um, And we provided a range of services. So we provided services to the pharmaceutical industry, to the NHS and to um, other um, SME companies in the East Midlands in particular. And those were tech services, those were staffing services, uh, business and occupational psychology. And then we even became one of the largest providers of stop smoking services across the UK. Um, So it's quite diverse in terms of what we did as a a business. Um, What started as a a business by uh, five friends soon became a business that was employing 145 people. So it became quite a big beast to, uh, to keep going. And um, when we got the opportunity, when somebody actually made an offer for the business, it seemed like a, like a good uh, idea to sell at that time because the, the risk-reward element, whilst we probably could have got more for the business by maximising its potential, maximising it, its EBITDA and selling it maybe a slightly later date, we yeah. banked on a slightly safer approach while there was an offer on the table. Okay. Um, and that was in 2015. Okay. Um, we also started a, a separate business uh, during the course of, of North 51 that we called the Insight Lab. Um, and that was a, a business that I'm very interested in. My, my former business partner uh, still runs a very similar business, which is the psychology of using digital tools. So user experience testing, user experience design, um, and really doing the right kind of market research before starting huge expense on developing digital tools. So the Insight Lab was a, was a foundling business that we sold at the same time. And then I stayed with the, uh, the buying company for a couple of years during an earnout period. Lots of lessons to be learned when you sell a business. 
and certainly lots of lessons to be learned about an earnout period as well. So we can certainly talk about some of those things. Yeah. Um, and in 2017, decided what was I going to do with the rest of my career. I was then aged 50 and I was starting to invest some of the proceeds of the sale of the business into property. And I enjoyed doing that so much, I decided to turn it into a full-time business, um, which is what I've been doing since the end of 2017. Okay. So if we if we go back to um, when you were employed, um, yep. you know, that's obviously a lot a position that a lot of our listeners would be in. Talk to us about how you obviously progressed in that role, but what led to a point where you think where you thought actually I can take this and run with it for myself rather than being employed. Yeah. Well, the pharmaceutical industry is a great industry to work in because it provides you with a lot of training and development. So I joined it straight from university as a, as a junior uh, medical sales representative, and I was given lots of training every year, lots of personal development. I was able to progress into a junior training role, into a marketing role and into management roles, and eventually found myself setting up uh, a new business unit for an arm of Johnson & Johnson. Um, we launched the world's first contraceptive patch of all things. Quite a bizarre little product, but it was a great experience. And yeah. we built a wonderful team to do that. So that was my career progression within the pharma industry. The key about getting the right kind of personal development was that I felt I, I had all the tools I needed to run my own business. I was given those tools within that corporate career. And the corporate career lasted around 14 years before I saw an opportunity to join some colleagues who were uh, taking a voluntary redundancy um, to start providing services back into the pharmaceutical industry. And a couple of those services at that time in, in 2003 were the digital tools that pharmaceutical companies now use quite widely, but then were still quite fledgling. And also the provision of people within the pharmaceutical industry, um, they use a lot of contract salespeople rather than employing their own sales forces. So we employed the teams, we provided the cars, the computers, the phones, we put them on the road, but they were trained up to sell different pharmaceutical companies' products. And those are called contract sales uh, representatives. And that's a service that we were able to provide to a huge number of pharmaceutical companies across the UK and, and built up uh, a, a great reputation with. We also provided recruitment services and occupational business psychology services, the development of bespoke assessment centres, selection centres, um, ways to, to improve sales forces for those pharma companies that we were working with. On the digital side, obviously the digital services didn't just apply to pharmaceutical companies. So we provided a lot of those services to a whole range of businesses, particularly other local East Midlands businesses. Um, and that range of, of tools were, were training platforms, uh, applications and digital apps, uh, websites. And that's what led us into also developing the Insight Lab to do the user experience testing. Because it was such a broad range of services, though, that we were providing, one of the important things when we were developing the business was having the right kind of people running each of those divisions. 
So the division of labor, the right kind of delegation, the right planning and organizing, and then monitoring what those different divisions were doing was all really important. And as we developed more of those services, we had to add quality individuals to the team. So being in part a recruitment organization helped us grow the business by finding the right kind of people that we needed. So when you so when you were employed, you, you basically earned the skills that allowed you to almost copy and paste what you'd already done, but to a new project that was obviously your own business. Very much so. Yeah. As a, as a national sales manager for a pharmaceutical company, it wasn't a huge leap to be able to then build a contract sales team that would sell products in exactly the same way, be trained in exactly the same way, managed in exactly the same way, but actually selling other companies' products um, on, on, as a service relationship. Yeah. I suppose that's, it's, it's very interesting going from that, you know, both of those stages. Um, you know, going from learning to build that sales team up, obviously working for someone else is one thing. And then you've got the the kind of business side of it as well, which is something you never quite know until you get into it. Um, I mean, I, I found in business a lot is through the people anyway. So you've got that aspect. I mean, what other challenges did you find in terms of the business side that was, that was new to you? Um a lot, really. Um, we, one of the key things from a, from a pharmaceutical corporate point of view is that the organisations I worked for were major global companies. So they had large finance teams. They had large HR teams. When you're starting your own business, you are the finance team, the HR team. You, you're doing everything. So the expression of rolling your sleeves up and getting stuck in is never more true than when you're starting your own business. Um, the important thing is using expertise and advice of all the experienced people that you've built networks and, and contacts with over the years. Mm-hmm. So from a finance point of view, I, w- I was able to, to network with the right kind of finance people that gave us the right kind of guidance yeah. uh, when we were setting the business up from a financial point of view. Um, in terms of the HR point of view, when we started to employ staff, Again, yeah. we contracted a lot of those services out, yeah. but I already had the right contacts of who to speak to, to do the right things in the right ways. Um, we used the right legal advice, which is very, very important when you're starting a business, to put yeah. the right types of contracts in place, both contracts with your clients and employment contracts with employees. So those were all learning things that I'd never had to do in the corporate world that we had to grasp straight away when we were, when we were running our own business. And then the most important thing of any business is cash flow. So yeah. managing cash flow, making sure we had a, a business process that was structured around uh, at producing the most positive cash flow that we could was much more important to us than aiming for a particular turnover or, or even the amount of profit that was going on a project. We'd take less profit on a project if it had a much more positive cash flow mm-hmm. in the early stages, certainly. Yeah. Okay. I think the key the key part that you've touched on there is not being afraid to leverage it out, like mm-hmm. you know, getting those experts in because they're you know you may be good at what you're good at, but actually leveraging it out to others is is crucial rather than either getting it wrong or spending three times the amount of time learning how to do something when you could just leverage it out in, in a third of the time, which is I think is a lot of where new businesses struggle. I've always been one that's been good at building a big network with people. 
Yeah. And finding the right experts for the right job is very important. And as you rightly say, um, we outsourced lots of services for many, many years within our business. Even when we grew to employ um, over 140 people, we were still outsourcing our HR services. We were still outsourcing our financial services. Um, there was many things that we weren't able to outsource that we chose to bring in-house. But as much as we could uh, use third-party specialists for, we did because we felt we got uh, good value for money yeah. uh, by yeah. doing it in that way. And then when you touched on the five friends, was that were they people that you already worked with? Or were they completely outside the company? How did you sit down and decide, okay, these are the, these are the five that are going to run with it? You know, X person brings this to the team, X person brings this to the team. It was staggered, yeah. Um, In that way, we probably didn't plan that aspect of it. That aspect kind of just came together uh, organically. So uh, two of my former colleagues had taken a voluntary redundancy package from a pharmaceutical company that we'd all worked in for many, many years together. So we'd known each other for a decade before starting a business together. They'd then taken on another partner in a fledgling business that they were starting up. Okay. At that point, after they'd been doing it for about 18 months, I had the opportunity to also take a voluntary redundancy. And another one of our ex-colleagues also had the opportunity to to do the same. So we decided, the five of us, to then get together and start a new business. And that's where where North 51 started. Mm -hmm. So four of us had known each other for many, many years. One of the partners had joined the first two people. Um, so it came together organically like that. But what was important to our success, I believe, is that we were all very different people with yeah. different areas of expertise in that corporate world. Yeah. So myself and one of the partners were very much in the sales and sales management and sales training background. One of the team was very much a strategic business planner who'd worked for both the NHS and the pharmaceutical industry. Another one of the partners, his expertise was marketing. And so from a digital marketing point of view and from the point of view of growing our own business marketing, his marketing expertise was really useful. And then the fifth member of the team um, who who was new to us but hadn't worked with us in the corporate world had a digital development background. And so a very different skill, but very specific for that division of the, of the business that we wanted to grow. I suppose that's quite important when you're, when there's a few people starting a business together with having those clear defined roles as well of what everyone's doing. And it's not just the, the day-to-day stuff. It's all the other things like HR and finance and, and like you say, all the stuff you've then got to learn as a, as a small business. Um, there's an old saying, Jim, isn't there? If you want to go far, go with a group of people you know if yeah. you want to go fast you can do it yourself mm. but we wanted to go far we wanted to be a long-term business so doing the delegation exactly the way you've described it having defined roles was very important um, what we also did because one of our our team was a, an occupational psychologist the strategic planner robert and um, robert used some of the occupational psychology tools on ourselves so yeah. we've got insights into um, the type of, of personalities we all were. Now, yeah. we'd all done some of this in the corporate world within, within the pharmaceutical industry, but it was useful to do at the point that we were starting a business. So we knew where each other's strengths were, 
where each other's weaknesses were, but also just the differences in personalities, what things were great. You know, one of the team was ultra optimist, very, very high on that optimistic scale. Another yeah. member of the team was an ultra pessimist, mm. very, very on the, far on the pessimistic scale. And it's important that those individuals knew that about each other in order to communicate in the right way and not frustrate each other. Yeah. So knowing about, um, about each other's personalities, doing some, some business psychology tests with your business partners can be a really useful way when you're starting the business to help each other uh, do the right type of defined roles. Yeah. And what it can also help is when you're then recruiting the first members of staff into your team, that you're recruiting the right kind of individuals to both yeah. get on with other members of the team and have good teamwork, but again, that are right for the kind of role that you're going to be given. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really interesting that because I, I mean, I've heard, I hear a few people talk about it. So I mean, I've, I've had some a little bit of training experience with in, in a sales background as well. Is is kind of people's personalities and how to deal with the different types of personalities and. Yeah. It, it's very true because you know I, I love these kind of personality tests and, and you, you know one of them quite popular is the wealth dynamics one there's um the disc profiling if everyone's heard of those um yeah um and I, i'd say to anyone actually you know just as a little thing a tip i suppose is if you've never done one do one yourself even if it's yeah. a free online one just yeah. understand what your kind of personality is and um like you said paul it helps to see who you're working with and also how to communicate with them um and you need to have different people in your team who've got those different skill sets um i i found it fascinating in sales I, I, you know there was i can't remember what, what it was called but there was one where you have four different colors of people so you have blue green yellow and red yeah. every time i used to meet someone i used to go straight away they're a red person and you think oh, yeah. that's how i'm going to speak to them today um you know and it's it, I, I find it fascinating to this day. Um, and it's the same, you know, if anyone's going to business together or doing joint ventures or anything like that, it's, this should be kind of one of the first things you look at with them. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I've got my insights profile on my, on my cupboard behind me. Um, uh, so I, I still refer to it. Yeah. Um, another useful thing that, that um, people can do as well is what we call a 360 degree appraisal which is that not only do you want um, a line manager appraising you, but if you're running your own business and you've not got a line manager, you want your colleagues to appraise you. Yeah. You want to appraise yourself. And then when you're employing staff, you want those employees to appraise you as well. So you're getting different views of people um, related to the relationship that you have with them. And that provides you with insights. I don't know if you know that the old Joe Harry's window but it provides you with insights where you might have a blind spot, the things that you don't realize about yourself. And it might be something about your communication style. It might be the way you use your emails. It might be the way you uh, text people late at night. Uh, it might be all sorts of things, but it can help you modify the way that you work with other individuals and communicate with them. So a 360 degree appraisal is a really useful tool as, as well as a personality profile. Yeah. But you think if, if you've got individuals that are very similar in terms of personality, say, you know, all yellows and the, and the colour, is that, is that a no-go in your opinion or do you think you can still work through it? No, I don't think it is a no-go. I think you're, as a team, you're probably going to get on very well. But what you need to be very mindful of is because you're all in that one sector in terms of your personality types, 
you need to make sure somebody is responsible for doing the green and blue tasks. So the types of tasks that the finance team would do of making sure every I is dotted, every T is crossed, that all of the numbers are right, that the books are being kept correctly, that the administration is being done efficiently, um, that you're keeping records accurately, that you're doing everything you need to do from the, from the taxman's point of view. So all the things that maybe the yellows don't like doing, if you've only got a team of yellows, somebody has got to be responsible for making sure that's done. And actually what it might mean is when you start to employ people or when you start to outsource services, outsource the services that yellows aren't very good at. And did, did that always go smoothly for you? Or were there lots of challenges? There was always challenges. The first 18 months, two years of starting a business is a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, the, the main roller coaster, in my eyes, is cash flow. And that's why I talked at the beginning that cash flow was the important thing to us. Uh, much more important turnover uh, and more important than the, the profit margin on each project as well. But making sure that that cash flow worked, making sure we were able to um, uh, keep the business going, build up the client base, build up the, the income stream during that first 18 months. After that first 18 months, two years, it did get much easier. We went through the, the 2008 recession um, with barely a problem. Uh, we were a little bit, not, not protected from it, but we were working in two of our main sectors, working with the NHS and working with the pharmaceutical industry, weren't too badly affected during the 2008 recession, certainly not immediately. Um, what you do have to do when you're, you're obviously running your own business, and everybody knows this, is you have to be flexible. So we would change services. We would review things. We'd, we'd deliver different services. That's how we got into providing stop smoking services. It wasn't one of our ex- areas of expertise. Um, in the first seven, eight, nine years of running the business, it wasn't a sector we were in at all. Right. What was happening was the NHS was starting to outsource those services. And we were providing software for those services within the NHS. So quickly we realised that sector of our business yeah. was, was under threat. And we yeah. looked at different strategies with how we could protect ourselves against those threats. And one of the ways to protect ourselves was to actually tender to be the, the organisation that would deliver the services. And we employed the right experts, we built the team up with the right people in the right um, roles and we quite quickly started to win the delivery of, of those tenders. Yeah. And that helped protect the digital software that we were providing into that sector also. It's crucial, isn't it, not to have blinkered views and, and actually adapt to the yeah. market that you're in, but not, you know, you don't have to be fixated on one product as such, but maybe have a focus on the market as a whole and have the multiple channels that you can go down in that market rather than be fixated on one thing. A great example recently during the, the, the pandemic, um, more and more um, of the face-to-face sales calls that pharmaceutical companies used to have mm-hmm. is now being done over Zoom calls yeah. like this. Yeah. And that will probably continue um, to be a dominant part of pharmaceutical sales for the foreseeable future. Because there aren't many hospitals that are going to be wanting sales representatives running around the corridors of of the hospitals. Um, But even when the pandemic's over, I think what what will happen is 
the role of a future medical sales representative will be more of a hybrid role. They will always be using Zoom calls as well as face-to-face, whereas that never used to happen in the past. So those companies that adapt to doing online calling, working with customers in that way, and are more effective at doing that, I think will be more successful once the pandemic's over as well. We're spending talking about businesses adapting because near my office uh, over the back here, there's a a gin distillery that um, has obviously, they've realised that they've got all the same equipment designed to create hand gel and hand sanitizer. So they've completely stopped the gin production now and just gone solely into, into hand sanitizer. And it's crazy how, you know, it takes, it takes a person to sit back and go, okay, you know, I've got, I've got, the ability to do X, but actually in the background is Y, there's Z, that, that everything can be done. And it takes a business mind or an entrepreneur to sort of sit back and go, okay, we are a gene distillation, but actually at this time it's, it's worth doing this, it's worth doing that. It's, it's completely being adaptable. The other caveat as well with, with flexing and, and pivoting and, and being adaptable is the quality still has to be there because yeah. your business reputation, yeah. Yeah. your company name, um, it, it's very important to protect. Absolutely. And so if you are going to adapt and do a new service, don't just play at it. Make sure, again, that you get the right advice, you do the right research, you really prepare to deliver that new service or product mm. to the same quality of all the other products that you've, you've had in your business. Agreed. And so you're not seen to be just jumping onto the bandwagon of the next thing, but you're, yeah. you're actually still producing a quality service or, or product and that was very important to us when we when we decided to to deliver a new a new product or service like smoking cessation we brought in an expert from the department of health to help us develop that division within the business because it was very important to us that we were going to deliver a premium service yeah. and not just add something to it just to protect the digital products that we had with the business sale did you go into business with the intention of having a date of when you were going to sell by did that just happen by chance and obviously talk about the um you know the air and out period and, and those sort of things is, is obviously a can be a, a massive part of a business if it comes to a point where they are looking to sell absolutely so at the outset uh, we had multiple discussions as uh, as the owners of the business mm-hmm. about what our goals were what we wanted to achieve yeah and um, we didn't put a specific timeline on it but i would recommend having a timeline is a great idea okay. the reason we didn't put a timeline on it is we were in our mid to late 30s um at the time nearly all of the directors um we decided that we wanted to run the business grow the business at least for a, a good proportion of time so we weren't in any rush to sell okay. but we knew that we wanted an, an exit at some point and mm-hmm. um, now the problem with not setting yourself the deadline is that point may never come. And we found ourselves 12 years in realizing where did that 12 years go? Um, It had whizzed by. Um, When somebody made an offer for the business, uh, a completely unexpected offer, um, we had, we revisited that original discussion about our goal was to eventually sell. We we have been running the business 12 years maybe now is a good time and we agreed as a group to to sell the business within our business not all of the five founding members of the business stayed with the business one left after only a couple of years 
because his life took him in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another uh, one of the founding directors actually uh, was based up in Scotland. Uh, most of our clients were down in the southeast of England and again left for, for different uh, reasons to start a, a, and run with a business up in Scotland. Okay. So we ended up with only three of the original members of the business um, uh, at the latter part of the business and actually selling the business. And uh, there were just, just three owners by that, that point. Right. Okay. So it can change. So certainly having a, having a deadline at the outset is important. Obviously having a shareholders agreement is really important. And, and one of them, we got away with it, but one of the bad things that we did is we never got round to finalizing our shareholders agreement. And I'm embarrassed to say that publicly because it's a fundamental thing that everybody should do. It is really important. And when I say we got away with it, what I mean is we were fortunate that we didn't have fallings out, that we all agreed with each other and we were able to sell and exit the business without a problem. But if we had have had a falling out, not having a shareholders agreement, could have caused us all sorts of problems. Instead of having a timeline on it, did you have a, a figure of what you wanted to sell for if we were approached by that? Or Each of us had maybe a slightly different figure in mind, and we had discussed those figures. Mm. So we didn't set a hard number on it. We knew roughly what we were trying to generate in terms of EBITDA. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that the, the EBITDA was somewhere in the region um, of 500,000 to, to a million pounds. That was yeah. a goal that we were setting ourselves. Yeah. Um, and then obviously when you sell your business, you're usually selling it for a multiple of the EBITDA. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a, a rough guide. And as I say, we didn't maximize our exit because we weren't at the point at which an offer was made for the business. We hadn't maximized the EBITDA. And it's, there's a number of things you can do a business, as a business to maximize that. And, and the one bit of business advice I've given to other um, uh, colleagues, friends, people in my network that have started businesses is always be prepared to sell. So always be looking at how you're maximizing your EBITDA every year or every two years mm-hmm. or have a three year plan for it so that you're always ready for when that offer might come out of the blue or something else might happen in life and you choose to, to sell the business at that point. Uh, don't wait until you think you're ready to sell the business and then maximize the EBITDA, yeah. which is kind of what we fell into a little bit. It's just about, you know, pretty planning ahead a little bit with always having your options open, isn't it? Very much so. It gives you more options, Jim. If you've, if you've got it planned, if you're, if you're keeping your EBITDA as, as efficient and maximized as it can possibly be, um, without being detrimental to the growth of your business, um, that's a useful position to be in because then you, you have got, you know, a lot of flexibility with what you decide to do. You were approached then rather than actually going out to the market to sell. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a little aside, a little uh, funny story, I went, uh, I, I was kind of always involved in doing business development. It's probably my, my sales background. That was what I was, uh, I enjoyed doing. It's what I was, I was good at. So I was out doing some business development with a, what I thought was a small organization. And I met the CEO of this small organization for a coffee. And the CEO of this company asked to buy our company, which came completely out of the blue because I was trying to get some business out of him. And what I didn't know is that this relatively small organization 
that probably employed 12 to 18 people. And we were employing 140 and I thought we were much bigger than them. What I didn't realize is they had backers that were extremely wealthy. Um, and they had a huge injection of capital and they wanted to grow as a business and develop multiple uh, strands and arms to their business. And they saw us as being a, a great acquisition. So completely unexpected. I probably hadn't done my, my research well enough when I went to my, my sales meeting. Um, but yeah, it was an offer that came completely out of the blue. So that then meant I had to have a discussion um, with my fellow directors and owners about what we wanted to do, whether we wanted to, to pursue the sale and, the, and the, the offer that they were making. And that's a long and laborious process. So once we'd in principle agreed that we wanted to explore that sale, um, with this offer, we then went into that process and that took six months. And okay. um, I'd say six months is an average. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that's an undue lo uh, long uh, sale process. Um, and it's probably never going to be much shorter than that because of the yeah. amount of due diligence that needs to happen. Yeah. At that point though, the, the most important thing is getting the right financial expertise from um, a, an accountancy firm that are experts in the sale of businesses and the right legal expertise. And we, we worked with uh, Cottons and Martineau and mm. both of those organizations helped us greatly prepare for that, that sale process. And yeah. um, it was quite arduous. One of the other difficulties during a sales process is keeping the day-to-day -day business going because yeah. your energy and your attention is being sucked into the sale process and everything that you need to do for the buying company's due diligence. And that does distract from doing business development and, and lots of other day-to-day -day aspects of the business. So if you're going through the sales process, you also have to be prepared um, that other members of staff need to take on responsibility to keep some of the day-to-day -day roles going. Yeah. Yeah. You I suppose it can be quite a, a, a stressful and challenging time in that process then because yeah. it's, you know, it's not, it's not like, oh, I agreed to today for this and, you know, next week you've sold it. It's like you say, a lot of due diligence, a lot of legal work, um, a lot of people involved. And, you know, it, it reminds me of buying a house because I've, I've had house purchases last that long, if not longer. Um, well, so, imagine yeah. a house purchase, Jim, whereby you also have... 12 to 18 people in a room, uh, lawyers, yeah. accountants, and, uh, owners, shareholders, all debating things and trying to look through, you know, essentially what, what would be your, your, your survey for a house, yeah. uh, looking through that due diligence and trying to pick it apart. And okay. that goes on for months and months. Um, yeah. for, for selling the business, you have to make sure all of your contracts are in place. Um, yeah. You know, for every one of the, the, the contracts that you have with every client um, also all of the things um, that you have as a business, if you own your own premises or if in our uh, case, we leased serviced offices okay. and we had to, we had to, you know, dig out the leases on, on all of those types of things as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a stressful process selling a business. That's for sure. I suppose it is on a psychological basis as well, because you know you've got, you've taken that business from nothing to where it is now, and it's almost like passing that on is is quite a hard. You know, it must be a long thought process to think, okay, am I ready to do this? Are we? Is it what we really want? You know, it's it's quite a hard thing to do. It, it's it is. Um, it, it, it's 
I, I, don't, I don't like to use this phrase because it's cheesy, but it is your baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, and if you've worked at it for any length of time, no matter how long, in our case, it was 12 years. But, you know, even if it had just been a, a three or four year process, it's still um, something that you've created and it is very special to you. Mm-hmm. And so it is difficult from that point of view. But once you make the decision to sell mentally, you have to be all in. You can't dither about. It's a lot of work and it will distract you from the day job and and harm the business if you dither in and out, don't sell and then go back to it a year later or two years later. Um, So you've got to be all in um, and fully behind the process and all in agreement with business partners. And Mm -hmm. we were and we went through that process. But the day we sold, um, it was mixed emotions. There was huge celebration. You know, we shared a glass of champagne and we, um, we felt a sense of relief because that six months had been difficult. Yeah. But there's also a degree, a tinge of, of sadness because we were no longer the owners of a business that was very special to us. Of course. Yeah. And that brings us to, we talked about the, an earnout period. When you're structuring the sale of a business, um, yeah. the, the buying company will want as much of the sale um, cash to be based on an earnout as possible. Okay. And as the sellers of a company, you want as much of the cash at the point of sale as possible and as little as possible in the earnout period. Now, one of the reasons we agreed to the sale so quickly is we were um, offered most of the cash at the point of sale. Okay. And it was very little of the deal in the earnout. And that was quite important to us because we'd had that advice from solicitors, from accountants, from other entrepreneurs that had, had built and sold businesses, mm-hmm. have as little of the deal in an earnout as possible. That's really a cherry on the cake. Yeah. And one of the main reasons for that is at the point that you sell the business, you're no longer in control. The new owners are. Mm-hmm. So you can't control how the costs are going to be managed and how the profit is going to be driven and delivered. Yeah, um, yeah. So you don't really have control over how easy it is to hit those earnout figures. Um, and that's a very important factor when you're structuring it. The other stra- um, uh, important factor is in an earnout, psychologically, it's quite difficult if you've owned your own business, in our case for 12 years, yeah. to be an employee. Yeah. And yeah. so you need to go into that with your eyes open. You need to sell if you're going to be staying around for, for a couple of years, you need to try and sell to people that you think you can work with and that you can have a good working relationship with. Mm-hmm. Even then it is going to be difficult. And the longer you get away from the point of sale, the harder it becomes to, to stay within that burnout period. And um, it, it gets more and more difficult. You become more of an employee the further away from that point of sale you actually get. You were out for two years, did you say, Paul? Or? Two years. Um, and uh, for me, there's several reasons. One, um, it gave me a period of time to take a salary from yeah. the new employers while I worked out what I wanted to do next with the rest of my, my life. I was 48 years old at the time. Mm. Um, so I still wanted to do lots of other things. So I, certainly being an employee for that period, I thought that'll be easy enough. I can plan my next business and my next move Um, but it was tough it was difficult being an employee working for somebody else the other aspect is i also felt a responsibility to all of the staff we had 145 people working for us 
And I felt a, a huge sense of responsibility making sure the transition was as successful as possible to make sure that their jobs were as secure as possible. So that yeah. was another factor for me that was, was important during that earn-out period as well. And actually, um, one of the things we probably didn't plan enough, which is, again, another piece of advice I give to other SMEs that are looking to, to exit, is do, do think about that, that communication process. Because during the due diligence for the sale process, you can't be that open with all members of staff. A lot of that information is very confidential and very sensitive. But you do need to plan for how you're going to communicate it to the staff, when you're going to communicate it to them, and how you're going to help staff with that transition. Um, because it is quite difficult for them. They, they immediately think the owners are going to sell the business. And at the point they've sold it, you're going to just run off into yeah. the distance. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the, some of the employees did get upset because they thought that's exactly what was going to happen. They didn't think um, that I'd be staying around for two years and, and working with them for two years. And, um, you know, that, that communication strategy is quite important for, for employees. Yeah. Uh, did, did the other two directors stay as well or was it just yourself? I wasn't going to go into that because, oh, okay. <laughs> but no, okay. one of them unexpectedly uh, resigned within 48 hours of was actually selling the business. Okay. And it was a shock. Um, I did think we were all staying for a full two year period, but the buying company didn't stipulate in the, the contract that, um, that we had to stay during that, that uh, earn out period. Um, so it was perfectly within all of our rights to have, uh, you know, agreed a, a departure. Yeah. Uh, one of the other members of the team um, wanted to leave and did leave a few months after the sale. So I, yeah, was the only uh, owner of the business that stayed for, for two years. Yeah. I mean, I suppose fast forwarding from there, obviously when you've done your two years, you kind of get to a position where you think, right, what's next? Um, I mean, did, did you kind of have a, have a plan in that two-year period of thinking what you were going to do or are you really just looking to move on to your next, your next venture? Or I had a notebook, Jim, and yeah. during the two-year period, I was um, working on a whole host of ideas in a notebook. Okay. I've still got that notebook of ideas. <laughs> um, and it was everything as extreme as, as writing a novel yeah. to um, investing in property. Um, okay. it, was, it was a whole range of, of different business ideas. Yeah. Um, and because I, I, I made some money from the sale of the business, I wanted to invest some of that in property. Mm-hmm. That was the, the first experience I was getting of working in another sector. And I enjoyed it so much. That's what led me into property being my first business post the sale of the business. Um, I do some bits of consultancy with some businesses, um, some uh, uh, non-executive director roles. Mm -hmm. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy um, uh, learning about another company's business um, in a very hands-off way um, and also uh, sharing with them experiences that I've had that I think can be of benefit uh, to their organization um, and being um, that that you know uh, person who's not tied up to their business that they can talk to share ideas with and speak to so I find yeah. that a very enjoyable role but certainly property is is the main passion uh, and the main business that I'm involved with 
Mm. There are probably still three or four other business ideas in that notebook that yeah. I would like to try and get off the ground at some point. Yeah. Uh, a couple of ideas for um, some, some digital uh, applications and platforms that I'd like to try and get off the ground, which I've just not got round to at this moment in time. Yeah. Uh, but one day, uh, I hope that they will see the light of day. Yeah. That's quite a, a strong mindset to to leave, obviously, after the two years and, and know that you've you've got this 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 pot of money behind you to actually think, okay, I can imagine there's a lot of people that would just sort of, you know, it could you could end up sitting there for months and months and months without doing anything because it's like, okay, I'll start tomorrow, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. How? What was the timescales around that? What what made you sort of get up out of bed and go, look, this is what I need to do. This is the do you have full plans, goals? At that point, um, I'd been working uh, straight from, from uni without uh, a break. And obviously, I'd been running my own business for the first 12 years. Yeah. And then in a director's role for the two-year earn-out period, I did decide to take a little bit of time off. So yeah. it was the end of September of 2017. Okay. And I decided that I was taking the rest of that year off yeah. and starting yeah. uh, my, my new business in January. Now, what that actually means is you do actually start it in October, November, and December. But you're not working full-time at it. You're simply setting up your, your hardware, you know, making sure you've got a laptop, a good mobile phone contract, making sure you've got the, the web address that you might want to use, the domain name that you yeah, might want yeah. to use. So doing the, the soft stuff in preparation for the setup of the business. Um, the bank accounts, the accountancy services, mm-hmm. all of those those types of things, yeah. um, and then it was it was a good, you know, start of a new year in twenty eighteen where I was able to just hit the ground running and then really work at it every day. Yeah. For me, I like to be disciplined in, in starting the day early in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, sitting at my desk with the laptop um, in a in an office type room here in my house yeah. and I, I work as though I am you know in an office in a, in a uh, business premises mm-hmm. even though I'm, I'm working from home that's the way I find it easier to work rather than it being too bitty or trying to flit yeah. around the house and do it yeah. and that's not to say in the summer I don't enjoy when I'm yeah. here in the house on my own sitting yeah. in the garden with the laptop because yeah. I do yeah. um, or sitting in a coffee shop when it's not a pandemic because I like that as well but it just helps me give a basic structure to what I'm doing Absolutely. to sit in an office at the laptop and start my work in the morning, you know, every day of the week. Yeah. It's something that Jim and I have actually spoke about before and how people work, you know, differently because I mean, I personally, and I don't know Jim is as well, but um, I had to get an office somewhere separate to home because I just, I could work from home, but I found it really difficult to stay motivated and have that fixated you know take yourself away from it but actually it was almost from an opposite point of view where you know you end up looking at the time and it's like stupid o'clock in the morning you think okay I'm still sat here but actually the work-life balance goes out the window and that's it's something that I think a lot of people are discussing now because of working from home has become the new thing a lot of people we speak to are saying they, they always struggle to either a get motivated or b switch off so it's quite interesting how in, how different people work, and yeah. um, and that obviously works for you with having a a separate space, but within home. Yeah, I think having been a a, a sales manager for many years in the pharmaceutical industry, um, most of my my roles within sales and within management were home based roles, so that probably helped as well. 
Yeah. I was always yeah. uh, um, in the corporate world having a, a home office base. Mm-hmm. So that, that certainly helped. Um, with, the, with the type of business, obviously, that we're working in now, property developing and property investing, um, obviously a huge amount of what we do is out viewing properties. He's being out on sites. Yeah. Um, so there's certainly a lot of breakup in terms of not just being sat at a desk. Mm-hmm. And that I enjoy. If, if I was just sat at a desk for eight hours a day, um, then, yeah, maybe being here in, in the home office, yeah. you know, would be too isolating, too lonely, and I wouldn't be able to, to stay motivated. No. But because I'm always jumping in the car and going to meet somebody, um, I find it, it works quite well for me. I've got a mixture of things now because I've got, I had, I had a separate office to work in, which was great, but I'm now finding on the flip side a little bit where I've got a few members of staff. And every time I go to the office, it's very difficult to just get my head down and focus because everyone wants to talk to me about something. So to do like important tasks where I need like an hour or two to do it, I'll have to come home and do it in the evening or separate day. Um, You've got to learn to scowl more, Jim, when you go in the office. Yeah, well, you're in a bad mood. It is one of the things that um, when you're working with with a team of people um, mm. and, and you're leading that team, you have got to be available to those individuals. Um, yeah. you know, communication has got to flow. They've got to feel that you're approachable about, about anything, you know, at any time. So um, it is one of the aspects of, of leading a team of people that I found is, is really important is that, that approachability. Mm. Um, and yeah, that approachability also means it's it's a constant distraction. What we found worked for us quite well. Um, I'm a bit of a night owl, so I would stay in the office um, often, in fact, mostly, much longer than most of the members of staff. Mm. So I'd be in the office for a good few hours um, while the office was, was almost empty or it'd be just a couple of us uh, in the office. And I yeah. know I've seen you switch off. I've seen you on social media that you're often the same, you know, yeah. you're still in the office at nine 30, 10 at night. And, and that I actually found those hours quite good to, to really motor through uh, getting some work done. What I found challenging is where you're doing everything and then you start to employ staff to take stuff over with and there's a transition period, but you're still almost doing everything, but then you need to spend a lot of time with them as well you soon lose that time it's um i can imagine going from sort of five of you to 140 people that there must have been a position where you kind of felt actually yeah now i've got enough people to delegate to and i can actually just sort of sit on top and just manage them um it's it's quite interesting jim um the the number of people um wasn't necessarily the important figure because the, the business was divided into lots of uh, of, of subdivisions of, of yeah. what those people yeah. were for. Um, so I actually found that creating lots of small teams is, is how things work very well. Yeah. So there was an a, administrative uh, uh, office management uh, systems process teams. Um, there was a, a small, relatively neat uh, recruitment team. Um, those teams, I would able to have an individual that was in charge of those teams who okay. I knew was a person that would be able to, to run that, that, that little subunit um, um, and run it very, very well. And I, I you know, was able to delegate and, and trust those individuals to do it probably better than I would ever do it as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it was less the fact that there was 140-odd people and more the fact that once that little team of, of five, six 
had a good team leader, then yeah. I, I knew it would it would work. Um, having a good PA for yourself is certainly one of the things that that um, really helped, so that you're not you know spending time again. If you're in the yellow or or the the red area of an insights profile, you don't want to be spending time doing your expenses and 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 fiddly you know uh, stuff that you know yeah. really turns you off at the aspects of business that you don't enjoy. Having a PA that can help you with that. Uh, administrative burden I found really really useful hiring that first person for me feels like quite a from from a almost a scary point of view in terms of you know can we make sure that the business can cope with it from a cash flow point of view but also being able to hand off parts of you know go back to that your baby that you've grown being able to hand off parts of that what advice would you give around that because that, that's something that I know a lot of people are, are finding hard well, I have to say that probably, again, because of the background I came from of, of building sales teams and, and employing salespeople, yeah. in my last role in the corporate world, I'd built a business unit um, for a launch of a product, and there was about 70 to 80 people in that business unit. And I went along to every assessment center. I stood up in front of all of the new employees and, and you know gave them the usual sort of rah-rah speech of how special... Uh, a moment it was and what we were going to try and achieve and gave them a vision of, of what we were wanting to do. So I'd been doing that in the corporate world just before starting my own business. Okay. So I didn't find the employing people within the business uh, too much of a change in terms of the step. Okay. I think making sure you've got the legalities right. So having a good um, uh, HR advisor, as I say, we, I always outsource that service. Okay. Having a, a good uh, um, uh, employment lawyer um, that you can outsource and um, developing a, a template, a contract for yeah. you to use and having their advice when you're first using those employment contracts. That's quite useful. Okay. Um, I was very fortunate. The, the employment lawyer um, that was prepared to, to do a lot of work for our business I'd actually worked with in the corporate world. They'd also taken a redundancy a, a few years earlier. Yeah. So it was great being able to use somebody that I'd known an, an awful long time and who knew the industry that I was working with. Um, but anybody that can give that, that right advice, get the advice, get the right legal templates in place. Um, make sure, obviously, the finances are right so that you know what the cash flow is going to be in terms of your forecast. So you, you know you're going to be able to pay that that salary for a period of time. Yeah. Um, those are the things that can ease your, your, your mind, ease the stress that you're doing everything the right way. Mm-hmm. And then make sure you're doing a good recruitment process. So um, as quite experienced uh, uh, recruiters, we were always talking to, to clients and I, I talked to other businesses that it's important when you interview somebody, you don't just try and click with somebody on a personal level. Because people like people like them. That's an old, an old adage. Yeah, yeah. But it's important you're looking for an individual that's got the right competencies for the role you're employing them for. So you need to do a competency-based interview with that individual where you're looking for evidence and contra-evidence that the individual has got experience of, of doing the, the types of roles that you're looking for them to do. But yeah. Using the competencies that you need to be successful in that role that you want them to do. And so recruit the right person. You're 90% uh, 
of the way there in terms of being stress-free. Obviously, you still then need to give that person a, visit, a vision. Um, you need to give them, share with them your passion, what you're trying to achieve. Um, you need to um, help to, to motivate them by understanding what motivates them, what's important to them, what are they trying to achieve, yeah. where are they trying to get to. Have a good performance management uh, system within your organization to do regular reviews with that person. They don't need to be arduous. Uh, they, they certainly don't need to be, um, you know, 40 page appraisal documents, but just some way of, of documenting and having a, a system and a process where you have that regular review with the employee. Yeah. All of those things are important to have, but they're the last 10%. Mm -hmm. the, the first 90% is recruiting the right individual by using the right process. And if you've not got experience recruiting, employ somebody, outsource it Absolutely. to somebody who's a good recruiter. Yeah. Explain what the role is, what's critical for that role to be successful and get that individual to help you recruit the right individual. We've talk, talked about a lot today and in general is any business, you need people skills. Yeah. It's just fact. It's just that's that's the crucial part. If you if you if you're good with with creating good relationships or building that um you know, almost like a little black book of, you know, if I need this, I contact this person. It's all people skills, um, which which really adds to any business. And that's something that, I, you know, speaking to a lot of young entrepreneurs, that's sort of the key part of what, what we say to do, rather than necessarily being an expert in everything, be an expert in how to create a team of experts and everything. Absolutely. And, and there is another way of building a business. Uh, you don't have to employ lots and lots of people. No. Uh, don't 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 use that as a benchmark of your success. There are very successful individuals that um, build a business. I know two business partners that built a very successful business, never employed anybody else, really? outsourced other services, but never had any other employees, and were still able to sell their business very successfully. So yeah, employing people isn't the only measure of success, but if it's right for your business, then then make sure you get the right people into those roles. And yeah, if you've not got the right skills yourself in terms of being a people person, work with somebody who has mm. um, or develop those aspects of yourself. Give yourself a structure Great. and educate yourself in how to do it. Leading into into the property investing and with what you're doing now, did you feel like um, that was starting a business from scratch? Obviously, you took a lot of skills and tools that you had from your previous business but going into this a whole new sector perhaps needed new contacts needed new skills and 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 going out into a world where perhaps you didn't know anyone involved with property you know how, how is that from a mindset point of view starting all over again and um, it's real fun it's, it, yeah. it was great fun and um, it was exactly that i i started as though it was a completely new business i didn't have a background uh, in property i didn't have a large extensive network um, so I, I set about getting myself educated and building the network that was my my starting uh, uh, place for, for building my property business and um, the educational aspects there's, there's lots of good education out there I do think there's, there's some great stuff out there and it's really important that you do yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, get the right advice and, and learn the right uh, way to do things and um, from a networking point of view um, it was a, it was a Google search. It was searching for 
property events, property networking events. And then from, it, from one event, I'd talk to as many people as possible and find other events. Um, yeah. And it snowballed. Uh, I met uh, uh, Jim at one of the first property events I, I went to, probably when, uh, when the business was only three or four months old. Unfortunately, I was so memorable, Jim doesn't remember me. Um, <laughs> we met at a, a networking event um, in, in the early part of 2018. Okay. And yeah. then we met at another event just a, a month or so later. And I wasn't sure whether it was Jim that had told me about it, but it was somebody at that event that told me about the next event and, and my yeah. network built at that next event. So Which event was that? the first meeting I went to where I met Jim was the Leicester PPN. Okay. Yeah. And that led to me attending a meeting that Andy Day uh, used to run yeah. at the embankment in West yeah, Bridge. I also went to Spike's uh, pin meeting in yeah. Nottingham, uh, the property face-to-face -face curry club uh, meeting, um, and uh, the Derby uh, PPN uh, meeting as well. Um, I counted up. I think there are 12 different property meetings in the East Midlands yeah, that you can go to each month. Yeah. And in the first few months, I was going to most of them. Um, yeah and built and got a business card I, uh, from everybody I, I spoke to or a contact number and arranged to have maybe a one-to-one -one phone call or a follow-up coffee with most of the people that, that I met. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and that was important to me. And, and I built a database of all of those contacts, kept in touch with people and always felt that they were people I could phone and speak to if I needed a bit of advice. Uh, myself and Jim, um, uh, working on uh, joint ventures now um, but we'd spoken to each other we'd viewed other properties um, yeah. when Jim was was sourcing properties we'd we'd discussed a number of, of other things at other meetings mm -hmm. I've introduced Jim to other former colleagues of mine that are trying to get into property as well and yeah. help, help yeah. Jim expand his network so all of that was an important aspect starting in property Absolutely. and then the the hardest thing for me was pressing go on buying that first um for me it was a buy to let property yeah. doesn't yeah. have to be a buy to let but for me that first buy to let actually um uh, completing on it was the was the big step yeah um a bigger step than employing people certainly for, from my point of view <laughs> yeah um and i i bought five buy to lets in my first six months wow um and not all great deals um, but a couple of them were, uh, a couple of them, I, you know, I was really uh, pleased with um, and think I've, I've got some, uh, some good gems in my portfolio. Yeah. Um, I then probably got a little bit distracted. Um, we, we probably often all, all get this, that we think we then mastered it, a bit like golf when yeah. you have a good round. You think you've mastered it. Yeah. So I then started to think I could do bigger stuff straight away and, I, I wanted to look at serviced accommodation. I wanted to look at HMOs and I wanted to get going in commercial property. Okay. And I tried to do all three of those new things at the same time. Yeah. And actually that slowed me down uh, quite considerably. I did get uh, a HMO and I did get uh, a couple of, of serviced accommodation uh, apartments, but since then only two other acquisitions. And um, so much, much slower yeah. in the last 12 months than in that, that first uh, 18 months. Mm. And I think that was really because I did let myself get a bit distracted by too many strategies yeah. and keeping too many plates spinning at the same time. 
Because it is, I think a lot what a lot of people don't realise is yes, you've got property as a business, but each individual property strategy is a separate business. Yeah. And and doing HMO service accommodation and commercial all at once is almost like running three businesses all at once. And it and it's not always yeah. possible. Completely agree, Nick. And and for me that that was I think I would have gone a lot faster in building my portfolio yeah. if I'd added just one new strategy. Yeah. Um, after the buy to lets rather than trying to add three strategies all at the same time. I'm a little bit more focused again now in that really um, I'm focused on looking for uh, HMO projects mm-hmm. and commercial projects. Okay. I'm not at the moment looking for any serviced accommodation. I'm not looking for um, for any buy to lets at the moment. Um, obviously, you can come across some of those other suitable uh, properties, but I'm trying yeah. to stay focused. Yeah. On, on commercial conversions at the moment. You mentioned about the first buy-to-let property and then it, it almost you know snowballed from there. Was that because, um, it's not the right word, but maybe did you realise that buying that first one, it wasn't as scary as you first thought? You know, what, what was the mindset switch that almost made you just go, okay, boom, let's just do the next one? Or It is, it is a, a, a fair factor of the unknown. Yeah. Um, until you go through the process again, when I bought my own home, um, I have to confess, my wife probably did most of the paperwork. Okay. I never really paid much attention to the process we went through in buying that home. Yeah. So actually buying that first rental property, I really did pay attention to each step of the conveyancing, exactly what, what we were doing. Yeah. And obviously, the, the power team that you, you have to get around you of a good broker, yeah. um, I don't know if you know any good ones, Nick. Always on the lookout. Having the right conveyancing solicitor, um, um, all of the, the, the people that, that you need, and then the follow-up people in the build team. Mm. Again, Jim, I don't know if you know any good build teams for, for property, but oh, you, need, you need good ones. Uh, the right insurance brokers, and so on and so forth. We know how, how big the, the, the power team gets. Um, all of that, we, we needed to get in place and we need to have confidence that everything was going to, those individuals were going to deliver on what they, they, they sort of promised, I suppose. And um, so buying that first one, working through it, it was quite uh, clear to me that having, a, you know, I had a good power team around me and I could simply replicate that process, yeah. the cookie cutter approach as we all often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so very quickly, the following month, property number two was, was offered and we, we completed on that one very quickly and and two uh, properties just a couple of months later and another property uh, just a month or so after that so in, in quick succession because yeah. it was using that cookie cutter approach yeah. we, we had confidence we had a power team in place and we had confidence we we knew every step of the process that we were doing and that the figures we'd calculated those theoretical predictions were actually true that, that those those yeah. calculations and numbers did work yeah. and it was a sound investment it's the same as a, a you know a normal business it's leveraging it out again to different getting different individuals involved but and it's almost like the the property is the client and if if, if you're a new business you want to take on more clients and if you've got the same like you say copy paste copy paste if the property becomes a client it's it's the same business model, whatever the business is. For me, having run uh, multiple contract sales teams uh, yeah. over the years, I, I use that analogy. Yeah. Um, and be, 
we, with, a, with a contract sales team, we had to make sure we'd recruited the right people. And that's just finding the right property in the first place where the numbers work. Yeah. And then you have to make, make that property um, the right type of property that's, that's going to rent out for the rental demand in that area. Yeah. Um, and that, that's very important as well. Um, but once you start to learn your area, once you see that, yeah, that the style of property we've created is right for the tenant demand in that area, we thought it was, we've now proved it, that gives you the confidence to move much more quickly. I was quite lucky, I think that, I sometimes call it lazy as well, rather than lucky. Okay. And I had a little bit of capital to start my, my business as well. I, I greatly admire people that are working full-time and building a property portfolio on the side. I don't know how I would have been able to do that. And I, I greatly admire those that have been able to do all their property investments with other people's money. Um, because I think that that's a, a, a tougher way to start than the way I was able to start. Yeah. So I feel quite fortunate that I was in a good position uh, to be able to build the portfolio quite quickly, quite quite lucky and almost quite lazily in the, in the way that I was yeah. able to build. Yeah. In a way, but then, you know, you earn that money anyway. So it's... it's it's not lucky or lazy, is it? It's just you you generated the income in a different sense and now used it on something else. Is your goal now to start working with other people's money to expand the property further now that you've sort of looked into that? Yes. Um, we. I want to still carry on uh, using my funds as well and, and recycling my funds. Um, but in order to go um, a little bit um, more quickly and build up a slightly larger portfolio on some of the larger projects we're looking at, We'd like to work with other investors as well. Yeah. Um, I like doing joint ventures. Um, I, I think um, having worked in, in multiple businesses and, and multiple roles, one of my strengths is being able to work in a joint venture with other people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. being able to do more of that is something I'm very keen to do. And the, the kind of commercial conversions we're looking at, um, obviously the purchase prices are often much higher. The yeah. conversion costs are often much higher. So getting access to, to capital is very much um, the, you know, the key step yes. in making those projects uh, come to fruition. Absolutely. So, yeah, definitely. We'll, we're on the lookout for, for much more. I notice you, you've integrated social media a lot more um, over, the, you know, over the last sort of months or so that I've, I've seen online. It's obviously grown quite a bit. What, what sort of advice would you give around that? Is it, is it a powerful tool that's a must-have of any business? Is that something you've, you've had to sort of jump in the deep end and learn more quickly? You know, what sort of things have you got on that? Well, as a, as a 53-year-old, um, social media was a challenge for me, yeah. I have to be honest. In the corporate world and running my own business, um, LinkedIn was okay. probably the only social media tool I'd, I'd really used. And I probably didn't use that very extensively. It was a messaging form uh, to send direct messages to people I, were, I was already connected with. Okay. Um, so using social media was, was a challenge for me. I was very self-conscious. Um, but somebody gave me a, a little bit of advice that it was important. And I respected their opinion. And I, I'm the kind of person that I like to commit to something. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was actually last June, July, I said, right, I'm going to give social media a, a real go. Okay. I'm going to commit to posting every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I've pretty much stuck. I think I may have had two days in the last 365 where I've not posted. 
I pretty much posted every single day and being consistent at posting every single day. Yeah. So yeah. On Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on Facebook. Um, I've not used TikTok. There's only so far that a 53-year-old can go. Um, I've, I have found uh, both Instagram and Facebook to be really useful from yes. a networking point of view. Yeah. Um, I've had people contact me that I didn't know and recommend and introduce me to, to properties, direct to vendor that we would may, may never have found otherwise. Yeah. Uh, potential angels are, are getting touched via social media. Um, but for me, where's, where it's been most uh, useful has been people I already had some sort of connection with can see that I'm actively involved in property. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so they, they treat my property business maybe more seriously mm-hmm. than they would have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. They would have otherwise thought, well, Paul's semi-retired now. He's sold his other business. Um, but now they see that my property business is a a serious going concern because Mm -hmm. of the the sheer volume of posts that they they see every week. Uh, So from that, it's been, it's been very useful. And and a lot of my, uh, my property discussions and connections regarding angel investing and regarding uh, uh, properties to view direct to vendor have actually come from existing contacts, but via the posts I've been doing on social media. It's quite incredible how, how you can build a profile up, um, you know, and showing people what you do and you, you get people coming direct to you because I know it's happened to me as well. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's almost like, mark, well, it is, it's, it's part of this, well, it should really be part of your marketing strategy as a, as a business for an entrepreneur, yeah. um, especially since it didn't really cost you anything apart from your time. And like you said, Paul, it's about being consistent as well with what you're doing and not, oh, I'm doing this one minute, then the next minute I'm doing this, then I'm doing that because people won't know what you're doing. And I think, oh, he's not really committed to that. I don't know if you guys are the same, but I've had calls from people I have no idea who they are. And then they're ringing and talk to you like they've known you for years because they've been following you online. And you think, I have no idea who this person is, but they're just chatting to you like, you know, like they've known you for ages. And and at face-to-face events, it's the same. I think that's it. I think it, it, it does not only break the ice, but it, it, it builds that virtual relationship so yes. that when you have a need to, to physically communicate or speak to each other on, on the phone or Zoom, you've already got a bit of a relationship, a platform, uh, a foundation, if we want to use um, uh, property uh, jargon, mm. but the rest of the relationship can be built on. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a degree of trust as well. I think if if somebody is consistently posting um, every day or every week, um, you know that these that it's an individual that is active. I have to be honest, I, I enjoy uh, uh, the process of, yeah. it, it gets me thinking, it gets me looking at, at the motivational quotes and the inspirational quotes that I, I like to post. It gets me thinking about the business tips and business advice and business content that I like to post. Yeah. Um, and then the property content that I post, it it helps me uh, organise things in my mind, think through certain topics uh, and subjects. So it's an enjoyable process. The gaining followers, whilst you want to build the network, that's not my, my driver or priority. Um, I'm much more involved in trying to put good content out there, yeah. have good discussions with people, yeah. and then hopefully organically, albeit slowly, the, 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 the network and the, the number of right. content will grow. Do yeah. you put the same content out on all platforms? 
I know that's something, again, me and Jim have talked about. I have a core content that would go on all platforms. Okay. Then you're quite right. There is a little bit of a different tailoring. So the one thing that's very different in terms of posts for me is LinkedIn. Yes. I post a very different um, style of content in LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. More business focus. It's less property. It's less of the motivational, inspirational quotes. Mm -hmm less of the the lifestyle things and it, it, it's it's 90 percent business content and business advice related okay. and so linkedin for me is a different uh, beast and some of that um was maybe my own personal choice because i already had two and a half thousand three thousand uh, linkedin business connections that knew me from my my previous business yeah. so uh, that was why it, it was a slightly different tool for me. But I think logically, it's a maybe different communication place as well. So it sits comfortably with me that I, I do communicate uh, different content on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And Facebook, I probably do put a little bit more personal stuff on there, personal yep. lifestyle stuff. Yeah. And then, and then Instagram is really the core of everything that I do. Certainly everything property and business related would also go on on Instagram. We really appreciate you coming on today, giving an insight, and I think there's a lot of value to be added to to our listeners, uh, both looking at into mindset, social media, property, business. Yeah. There's a lot to be taken from it. So hopefully, uh, some real added value there for uh, for everyone to take from it. So uh, thanks again, Paul. For anyone who, who'd want to get in contact with you um, going forward for anything, Paul, what? Were you happy to share your contact details or should we put them in the show notes? Or Absolutely. Um, it's easy to, to contact me via any of the social media platforms at Dermody Property on Instagram. You'll find me under Paul Dermody on Facebook. It's a, a relatively unusual name, so I should pop up on there. Yeah. And the same on LinkedIn. Happy to, to, to connect with anyone. Thanks again, Paul. Much appreciate it. All the best, fellas. This is the Entrepreneur Academy. If you have a question, use the hashtag the Entrepreneur Academy.